Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Strength in the Numbers. I'm really, really excited to share with you today our guest mentor, Bertrand Badre. And actually an interesting fact about having Bertrand on the show is that when preparing the show notes, he was one of the few guest mentors who's got a whole Wikipedia page about him because his career is just, well, completely amazing. I mean, Bertrand's currently the managing partner and founder of Blue Like an Orange, Sustainable Capital. And before that, ex-managing director, group CFO of the World Bank, group CFO of some very large global banks, author, teacher. In fact, one of his books, How Finance Can Save the World, had forewords from the current French president and former UK prime minister. So Bertrand's gained some very key global insights throughout his career and shares some of them with us today. And it's not just his career. During this interview, we cover so many really great things, so many fantastic takeaways. Early on, we discuss how when he was an investment banker earlier in his career, he was about to cancel this lunch that one of his university professors had set up. But instead, he decided to make the trip to it from London to Paris. And it led to some amazing opportunities, as well as gaining an inspirational mentor for life. So Bertrand's a big believer in the importance of giving back. Also why finance is so exciting at the moment and how potentially we're actually at the start of a new revolution where we can perhaps change the world through finance, in fact, maybe even save the world in some respects. But to get that, we need to appreciate a few ideas. So Bertrand shares with us a thought from one of his books, Why Finance is a Good Servant but Perhaps a Poor Master. And then beyond that, we go into some of today's global challenges and why Bertrand's actually quite optimistic. He feels that we have a lot of the pieces in the jigsaw to do something about them now, uh, but why we also need some trailblazers and pioneers. And as we're wrapping up some fantastic advice from Bertrand, I won't give it all away, but definitely worth listening into because it involves a very important principle before we do what we need to move into action. I just want to say a big thanks again to Bertrand for making the time for this. He was uh, he had a lot going on and was about to jump on a plane, so really appreciate him fitting us in his very tight schedule. Before we get to the interview, just want to say thanks again for all of you who keep recommending the show to your friends and colleagues. You can subscribe on all the major platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify and Amazon Music. And if you do want to know more about Bertrand, check out our website signshow.com where you can find detailed timestamps, show notes, key quotes ways to connect with Bertrand and more. I guess that's enough for me for now. So without further ado, over to Bertrand and the show. So Bertrand, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's our pleasure to have you on. Some of our audience actually might be familiar with you. We talked about your book a few weeks ago on the show. So would you mind giving a brief introduction to your journey in finance, please? Yeah, well, actually, it's a long journey because I was a good student in high school. And in France, being a good student meant being good in mathematics, in oh, figures. Okay. Based on that, I was directed to a business school. In business school, I majored in finance because this was the way you went when you were okay. 
after I graduated, I wanted to do further studies, but I had borrowed money from my business school, so I had to reimburse, so I had to work in parallel to my second school. And the first job I found was to be the deputy CEO of a mid-sized company. And so I took it. So I went back in finance. And then I went to the School of Public Service in France called ENA. Graduated okay. I was second. Tradition means that as a good students go into the Minister of Finance. So, <laughs> so I went to finance. I spent four years in the Minister of Finance. Then I wanted to move overseas and earn a job. And the one that really fits what I was expecting was Nazard in London and New York. So finance again. One step after the other, I fell into finance more and more. And it, it was okay, actually. I, I did not resist. But that's <laughs> the way it happened. It drove you in. If you had asked me at 18 that I would spend my life in finance, I probably would not have believed you. Yeah. But that's it. And then one step after the other, I stayed into that course. And I've discovered that one of the things I like is to use finance, which I think is a very powerful tool to try to address the world's most pressing issues. I did not dream about this when I was 18, but I'm okay to have found my way uh, 35 years later. Yeah, I know, I know you quickly skimmed through it there, Bertrand, but you've had an amazing career. Given all that's happened, I'd love to get your point about finance as a tool to do better. Is there any particular standout moment in your mind from your career that you're like, oh my God, I'm really glad I got into finance now? There were several turning points. If I have to take one, which has been quite decisive and could not have happened, actually, I was invited when I was starting in London as an investment banker for Lazard. I was 30 or 31, whatever. So not that young, but young in the business. And I was invited to have a lunch with Michel Consu, who just had left the IMF, where he was head of the IMF, but retiring head of the IMF, by one of my former professors. We said, why don't you come to Paris to have lunch with Mr. Consu? And so I was interested. But I remember the day before, I was in London and I said, my God, I have so much work. Why should I go to Paris for this lunch? And I was about to cancel this. Uh, finally, I did not. And I came and it was a very nice lunch. Nothing happened. But 18 months later, Michel Consu called me back and said, I'd like to work with you. And that's how I fell into working on the financing of access to water. That's how I moved from also being an advisor to President Chirac. And that's why the headhunter called me for the World Bank job 15 years later. And I really know that if I had not come to that lunch, things would probably have turned very differently. It's mad how one conversation just like that could be so pivotal, one decision at one point in time. And, you know. and Michel Consu has become, since that day, my mentor, my spiritual father, my source of inspiration, etc. And I'm glad I came. Yes. Actually, it's funny the power mentors can have like that. That's the whole reason for this show, as our audience knows. It's just a great way of giving back because mentors have so much to offer. Um, yeah, that's why I've always told people that's an issue because now uh, I can't say no and sometimes it's becoming difficult. Yeah. But that's one of the many reasons why today when younger people ask me to help them or mentor them, etc., usually I say yes because I was a type of guy that has asked a lot from people older than me. And so I have to give back, yes. It's a tough one, but maybe in future, Bertrand, say you're really busy. You can always say, look, go check out this podcast first that I did where I shared some of my <laughs> thoughts. It allows you to scale your time better now. So uh, that's why I look at it. Oh, but one day I shocked my team, actually, in one of the bank where I was CFO, where I told them I'm a CFO that prefer people to figure. And they did not understand what I meant. They thought I was dismissive with this job. And I told them this is not the point. But the point yeah. is that, and that is true, I really like people. I really enjoy discovering the personal story of people, their personal ambitions, how I can help, etc. This is what really drives me in life. 
I think we're two kindred spirits of that one, Bertrand. Yeah, definitely. I know we work with numbers, yeah. but really it's the people that we work with that work with the numbers. Yeah, no, I completely understand. Thanks for touching on those items. I'd love to pick your brains because, as I said, you wrote this book and Finance Save the World. I have to say there's some really lovely points in there. The first one I think our audience can help with. Bear in mind our audience, a lot of them are in senior finance position, getting into finance, growing their careers there. They can help influence a decision-making agenda within their companies across the 170 countries they're in at the moment. In the book, you intimate the idea that finance is a good servant, but poor master. Yeah. What are you trying to get at there, maybe, so our audience can understand what you mean by that? I think it's a poor tool. It's very much connected. I just published a book in French, which is a kind of uh, sequel of the previous one, which is called Do We Seriously Want to Change the World? My point is that we still live under the Friedman premises that the social purpose of business is to make profit and supported by the financial models that we've developed over the last 50 years. And my point is that finance is a very powerful tool. It's a tool that we have invented to address space and time. With money, financial instruments, you can project yourself 10 or 20 or 50 years down the road. There are governments that borrow over 100 years now. That's pretty interesting, but you can also go overseas. This is really the way you can move outside of your place. So it's an amazing tool, but the issue is that when it's becoming an end to an end, you miss the point and then you alienate the people. The point I'm making, and this is really something I've discussed in particular with people like Colin Meyer in Oxford, where he says the purpose of business should not be to increase profits only, it should be to find profitable solution to the problem of this planet and its people. So it means that, as I often say, profit is uh, revenues minus cost, to be very simplistic. But being a finance guy, I can tell you hundreds of ways to calculate revenues and hundreds of ways to calculate costs. So there are many ways to calculate profit. And profit for me is nothing more, nothing less than an outcome. And so how do you define that outcome is critical. Financial models, I've spent my life uh, reviewing and doing financial models. You have to make assumptions. You have to take different, different things into consideration. So uh, today there is a big discussion on the price of carbon. Tomorrow there might be a big discussion on the price of nature and biodiversity. And the day after tomorrow on the price of social diversity and so on and so forth. So there is nothing that prevents us from making our models more sophisticated and adding to the risk-return equilibrium, a third equilibrium you can call impact or you can call it sustainability or you can call it whatever you want, really re-anchor finance into the real world. That's a really interesting point. I was talking to an American CFO about this and my sense was maybe we didn't factor in all those costs to go into that profit calculation because we just thought they were too difficult or maybe didn't put our minds behind it. But they are genuine costs and they are part of the profit calculation. Of course. And that's precisely the point. So I think it's very exciting to be in finance today and I always encourage my students to do that because I believe that we are at the down of a new era in finance. The way actually I was when I was a student in business school 35 years ago, it was a new era. We were discovering with great enthusiasm the shareholder capitalism and all these things. And it seemed great. I said, my God, I'm at the right place at the right moment. I will enjoy. And uh, 35 years later, I enjoy, but I've also seen the limits. And now we have to get us hardwired for the next 30 years. I like the way you set down that challenge, Bertram. Maybe it's because, let's say, there's been a lot of digital revolution in the finance and accounting world, in theory, freeing up human beings' time to focus on more valuable things. I don't think anything more valuable than looking at longer term risks or maybe towards some sustainable development goals. There's plenty of opportunities for us to go and add value yeah, so and have a platform. Uh, we, we have great challenges today. You mentioned climate, obviously, but the social inequalities is another one. Nature and biodiversity is another one. And the sanitary crisis 
And so we have a lot of global challenges which are new to us. So since we've been living relatively okay for the last 50 years, we are very nervous vis-a-vis these challenges. But I remember I spoke a few weeks ago with a guy surviving the World War and we were discussing, can you imagine at the end of the Second World War? That was also not that easy. And then we have had the best years ever in the history of humanity. So we should stop lamenting and we should say, guys, we've never had that much money. We never had that much technological capacity. We have all the institutions we need. I don't need to reinvent the UN or the EU. These institutions, they do exist. We have to leverage them. We have to make them work. Uh, this being said, it's easier said than done. But the reality is that, as I said in one of my posts during the first lockdown, it's like a puzzle, a jigsaw. I think we have all the pieces, but now it's time to try to put them together. And we know the roadmap. We have the Sustainable Development Goals. We have the COP26 agreement. We have all the money. And again, we have even more money than we saw two years ago, thanks to the COVID. So there is really a flush of money everywhere. The digitalization is accelerating at a pace. What is preventing us really addressing this question, sir? I completely agree with all the above, Bertrand. There is great desire within our audience to try and progress this. Is there the willpower at the necessary levels in society to go make the change? Or are we just happy? It's like the example of heart patients. There was these American researchers they followed up with patients who'd undergone heart surgery to see if they'd adopted healthier lifestyle after their, their surgery. And they found out that only one in nine had indeed adopted a healthier lifestyle. So they knew the risks, that it was important to change, but most of them just went back to their old habits that weren't good for themselves. Do you think the willpower is there to change on this one? The, the issue we are facing is that in 1945, there was a clear uh, US lead. And basically, whether you like it or not, you followed into Bretton Woods. It went okay. Then in the 1970s, you had clearly an Anglo-Saxon lead with Thatcher, Reagan, and the likes. France tried to resist for two years, and then well, the problem today is that there is no master of the world. When you vote for Brexit, you clearly abandon any universal posture. Uh, when you vote for America first, the same. The Chinese dream is not called a universal dream, and so on. So there is a fragmentation of the world. And there is no master of the world that will tell them, okay, this is the new way. We have adopted in 2015 this roadmap, the Sustainable Development Goals and Climate, but there was no enforcement capacity. And that's the issue. So we all are, hey, no, I can't do anything. So I hope that somebody will impose this on me. But there is no master of the world. And that's a challenge. We are at a point where it has to work at every level. So of course, we we have to expect that the nations uh, will find a way, but we shouldn't fool ourselves. It's not going to be enough. So we expect the investors. We have all these big alliance of, of pension funds or asset managers, et cetera. Yeah. That's, that's the point. The consumer or the people are powerful. Yes, I remember Paul Polman when he was CEO of Unilever and he really changed the course of the company. And I told him, why do you do that? He said, well, because it's my conviction, but also because we can't attract any talent. And so if the young people say, I don't want to work for that company because I don't behave properly. If consumers say, I don't want to buy these products because you have pressure. Market pressure is a real thing. So I think we have to fight on two fronts. On the one hand, market pressure from consumers, from investors, from workers, from entrepreneurs, from civil servants, from everybody, from you and me. At every level, of course, you and me, we have probably more influence than the average, but still we can do something. Parallel to that, we have really to push as citizens in particular, for changing regulation. Of course, it's difficult. Nobody will make the decision for us. I finished my last book with this quote from Tolstoy, who said, everybody wants to change the world. Nobody wants to change himself. <laughs> yes. and my kids make fun of me every time I don't use properly you know, the selective garbage boxes. 
Uh, whenever I take a plane, they're right. It's difficult. We would like the world to get better without myself making too much of an effort. Yeah, that's a great point. We have to help people to be, I don't want to say to be virtuous, but I really want the system to incorporate this. That's why I say to incorporate the price of carbon, for instance, in accounting, or what is doing with Harvard and impact-rated accounting. We have to discuss the fiduciary, the people managing your money. We have to discuss the governance rules, boards, etc. Because this will help to go in the right direction. Today, you have nothing in the system that reward you for going in the right direction, nothing for punishing you going in the wrong direction. And exactly. that's the problem. For every quarter, when you close your account, I can tell you, your obsession is to close your account. It's not the future of the planet. Yes. This is the way it is. This is the way. So if this we don't address that, we just cannot rely on the goodwill of whoever to change the world. We need trailblazers and pioneers. But importantly, we need a systemic change. And the systemic change, because I've done that for my entire financial life, is the rules and regulation and, and the market pressure. If it doesn't change, forget about the rest. It will not happen. Yeah, I agree. And the first point you led with was the market pressure. I agree. But as citizens, we also have a role as well. But it's the market pressure. And and, and and I think that's where audience have a lot of influence here, whether they believe it or not, they do. Yeah. Uh, as employees, as investors, as people who support decisions. So thank you so much, Bertrand, for delving into that. I want to be respectful of your time, so we'll start wrapping up shortly. But before we do, I'd love to understand what's exciting you most about your current work. It's very interesting because we are at this precise moment where we have to change course. And because of my background, I have some influence, not that big, but not that small. Oh, come on, you're too modest. <laughs> no, but that's true. I'm no longer in charge anywhere. So I'm trying to write, etc. So when people ask me what I'm doing today, I say I'm doing two things. On the one hand, I'm trying to do as much as possible within the system as it stands today. I'm using the system, the framework, which is the system that we have today. And within that system, you can still do things. And it's okay. So I have to push the envelope as much as possible within that system. And in parallel, I'm trying to show and explain that this system is not 100% okay. And it needs basically all of us to take our toolbox, open the hood and work on the engine. We have to dirt our hands and say, okay, how do we address uh, the issues with accounting standards, with uh, compensation policies, with reporting requirements, all of these things. And so that's pretty exciting because uh, as I've said, in, I'm like Forrest Gump. I've been, it was not a plan, but I was there when the new economy collapsed. I was there uh, when we engaged on new financing tools in Africa. I was there when the World Trade Center collapsed. I was at the World Bank when we reinvented the financial system. So I've seen it all. That was not a plan. I feel I have a particular duty to work on what comes next. Being as a juncture of the public and private influences. One of the issues I see today is that everybody's in these silos. You have the regulators, the central bankers, the big banks and insurance, the small ones, the startups, and everybody's ignoring the others. That's terrible. But Bertrand, is there enough people out there? A lot of audience could relate to that within their own companies, these siloed functions, these siloed business units and so on. But really, is there enough people across society being able to rise above it and say, actually, there is siloed thinking going on. This is not the best way of connecting the dots and being positive going forward. I attended a big discussion, actually, which was joined by John Kerry in France two weeks ago on climate, which is one of the issues, not the only one. And I remember when I stood up and I say all the efforts we do on green finance, etc., we are on track to go to more than two degrees, whatever happens. So we still have to continue to put the foot on the brake. And that's very important that we continue. But now is probably the time to start thinking more seriously about what people call adaptation. I was in Portland, Oregon three weeks ago. I can tell you one of the most prosperous cities basically was dead because there were 113 or 115 Fahrenheit or 45, 48 Celsius. 
they were dead. I could not find a dinner at night because everything <laughs> in Portland, Oregon. I'm not talking about Latin America or Africa. I'm talking about one of the most prosperous cities on earth. You just give me a really great idea there. A lot of people have been doing continuity plannings around the pandemic that's been going on. It'd be interesting to know how many organizations are doing planning for things like that, extreme temperatures, poor pollution. <laughs> Most of the focus is really on electric cars. Don't misread what I say. I think it's important to continue in that direction. But I think we've started a little late. We are not totally fully serious about it. And so the likelihood that this will succeed is unfortunately little. Because when people don't feel the heat with the heat wave in the Northwest, the, the rain and, and the flood in Germany and Belgium. Or snow in Texas. That you have in, in Russia more than 45 Celsius and, and so on and so forth. So at some point, I, I guess it will accelerate. But, but we have to move on the two fronts because I believe that Everything we do to mitigate is absolutely necessary and useful, but I'm afraid it's not going to be sufficient. Yeah, well, Bert, again, I'm trying to be respectful of time, so maybe we need to regroup on that point. Look, you've given us some really great advice on the show, but what's been the best bit of advice you've ever received? It's actually from Michel Condessou. When he was the head of the IMF, he's been criticized a lot because he was doing supposedly bad things to poor people. And he told me a great quote from a French writer from the early 20th century, Charles Peggy. Uh, Charles Peggy was a Christian uh, writer, but socialist as well. Very interesting guy. And he was criticizing uh, the philosopher Emmanuel Kant. And he said, the people that want to keep their hands clean, they have no hands. Oh, wow. Meaning you can say, oh, you should do this and that. And then you become a philosopher and you write a book. And it's interesting too. Yeah. But if you really want to change the world, you have to put your hands in the dirt. And you have, yeah, to, you have to roll sleeves up. Yeah, it's more than that. You have to accept the risk of getting dirt on your hands. You have to accept the risk of making mistakes. And for me, it's extremely important. I've seen so many people say, oh, you should do this and that because this is better. I said, okay, but in real life, what do you do? Oh, it's difficult. Yeah, but then... yeah. Take your risk, be honest vis-a-vis -vis the risk you're taking, don't fool yourself and move to action. I think this is really important. I love that saying. I think that's going to be front and center yeah. of our podcast. Bertrand, thank you for being such a great guest today. So Bertrand, would you recommend any resources our audience go follow up with books, websites, links, things like that? Besides my own book, obviously. Uh, <laughs> which no, we uh, put in the show notes. There are a number of books which are very interesting today. I, I would mention a few. Uh, one is from uh, Sir Ronald Cohen called Impact, released uh, last year, which is on the impact revolution. One from Colin Mayer, who was a former dean of the State Business School in Oxford, a book called Prosperity. Uh, you have the book from Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, which has just been released called Values. I think these are pretty good books. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely, Bertrand. So we'll put links to those in the show notes. And I suppose if our audience have any sort of questions or wish to connect to get to know you more, where's the best place to connect with you at? I'm on all types of social network. I've created my own website. It's called Mark to Planet. So it's BertrandBadre.com. And the real title is Mark to Planet because I want to move from a system which is Mark to Market to a system which is Mark to Planet. I love to play on words. God, I've never heard of that before. I get it. It's great. Yeah. I think a lot of audience get it as well. That's fantastic. Mark to Planet. Look forward to checking that out. And again, Thank you so much for coming on the show, Bertram. But before we let you go, you got any parting thoughts for our audience? No, follow your dreams. I've seen so many people which at the end of their career say, oh, I wish I had done this and that. And the questions for me was a very real one. After the World Bank, I was not sure what to do when I grew up. And finally, I made the decisions with my partner to create my own business, which was never a plan. I was not trained for that. I was not raised for that. 
And the reason why I took the risk, it's because I didn't know it was such a risk. I totally underestimated the difficulty of creating your own business. But I also didn't want to wake up at 80 and say, oh my God, I had the opportunity to do something and I missed it because I was scary or I was nervous or whatever. What I tell my students, usually at the last lesson of any course, I say, shut your eyes. What's your dream? How do you want to be remembered in four years from now? And then put this somewhere in your brain. And there are many ways to get to your dream. If you sail, it's okay. You can fail. You can move right when you want to go left or left when you want to go right. This is absolutely fine. It's not fatal. But don't betray your dreams because this will be a tough when you realize that you move too far away from your dream. Wow. That's powerful words, Bertrand. Thank you so much for being such a great guest mentor coming on Strength in the Numbers today. Thank you. You're very welcome. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter, which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news, and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding, and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working, or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. When all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.